Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that shows you how to become the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Wershing. On this episode, we talk with Meg Bartelt, founder and lead planner of Flow Financial Planning. Meg has the distinction of having mastered the virtual experience before many advisors were forced to in the recent pandemic. She has an entirely virtual practice focusing on early to mid-career tech professionals. And while being virtual makes her somewhat unique among financial advisors, she stresses that the important things are the same as for any financial advisor, building relationships, developing expertise that her target market needs, and providing great service. She developed an expertise, for example, in stock options and stock ownership, something that many of her target clients need to handle. She coaches clients through job changes because her target market tends to be fairly mobile. So she has a lot of lessons that we can all benefit from. But she talks about why it's even more important for her with a virtual practice to focus on the needs of that target client, because where most advisors can meet prospective clients at the Chamber of Commerce or at the local country club, she has to compete with the entire internet. One thing that had us particularly interested in talking with Meg is that she can attract a consistent stream of referrals with a purely virtual experience, something that many advisors struggles with. And toward the end of the episode, she talks about how she handles those referrals when she comes in, when they come in. She has a lot of great ideas that would be applicable regardless of the environment. And so without any further delay, let's get to our conversation with Meg Bartelt. Meg Bartelt, welcome to Becoming Referrable. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So we have a, a, a bunch of things that we want to ask you about, but let's just start out with, you know, what what in your mind makes your firm Flow Financial Planning unique? Sure. Uh, well, I think it's unique to begin with, and for the same reason that I, I am unique, because I just made a business the, the exact way that I would want to run things that reflects my personality, reflects the way I think about the world. Um, and it was a real sort of joy and privilege to be able to get to construct a firm exactly around how Meg's brain works. Uh, but, that's, <laughs> but that's exactly what I did. Um, and probably more, perhaps more relevant is the fact that I have a really specific target market. I work with women in their early to mid career in the tech industry um, and have over the last four and a half years really iterated on what do those women need at those two career stages at those two stages of life and just really customized everything about the firm to serve to serve those women um yeah, so that's yeah. that's interesting, and 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 um, and I and I think it would be even cooler if you renamed your firm Meg's Brain because I think that would be <laughs> fascinating. Um, well, can what, I ask that, about that just before yeah. before we even move on? Because I, I do want to talk about how you build the firm around that target. But when mm-hmm. you say you built something that reflected you, which I think is uh, something we all want to do, what did that mean to you? Sure. Uh, I can probably best answer that by saying by by explaining where I worked before I started my own firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a career changer. I actually 
started working in the uh, in the tech industry myself. But when I switched to um, the financial planning world, I worked for a couple of fee-only registered investment advisory firms who were uh, fairly traditional in their uh, approach, their fee model, their target market. They were both investment-oriented and focused on the retirement population. Um, and, you know, I've always said retirees deserve love too. It just wasn't interesting for me. Here I was, you know, in my early 30s, I wanted to work with people who were more like me, which is, you know, a story you might, you might hear a lot. Um, so I wanted to work with people who were in sort of that, the, that thick of life. They're having babies, they're changing careers, they're buying homes, going back to school, climbing the career ladder, all those things that I was in the midst of and had been in the midst of and was going to be in the midst of for the next few years. Um, so there was, there was that part of building a business that was like me. Like, here are these people I want to work with, and I can't work with them in these businesses I've been working for as an employee. Um, and also, I, you know, I have a personality, and I wasn't really able to let the Meg flag fly in these, uh, <laughs> in these two RAAs. The, the second one I worked for uh, was run by a, an evangelical Christian man. It was a good firm. He was a good man, did good work for their clients, and I just did not fit. Um, and I really wanted to just be comfortable. I didn't want to have to watch out for how I expressed myself. Right. Um, I'm, I am a casual person in, in speech and in dress and in, in, in all of that, and this firm was much more conservative and buttoned up. Um, and so there, I, I just had to watch myself all the time there. Um, and I really just wanted a firm where uh, that part at least was going to be easy because I could just be me. Right. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. So um, so two questions about, about let's, let's talk about that backstory first. So you said you worked in sure. the tech industry and then you moved yep. over and, and worked for a couple of fee-only RIAs. What, how did you how and why did you make the transition from tech into financial planning? Yeah, well, there was both a push and a pull. Uh, so the push out of tech was I simply wasn't interested anymore. I'd been, oh. a tech, I'd been a technical writer for most of my career in tech, and I'd you know, gotten training and gotten certificates and sort of scaled the what seemed like a very short career ladder um, in technical writing. And I just wasn't interested um, I really enjoyed the people I had met there. I loved where I was living. I was living in San Francisco, sort of, you know, the, the heart of the tech industry, um, but was just sort of bored and uninspired. So that was pushing me out. Okay. Um, and I don't really remember when it dawned on me that there was this career called financial planning. Um, I, I was, you know, privileged enough to come from a family where you know, my father watched Louis Rukeyser and Wall Street Week every Friday. And <laughs> I was sort of familiar with the investing side of things. Um, I think it's probably because I was in San Francisco, which is this just probably the biggest hub of fee-only wealth management in the country. Uh, very active professional community there. So I got, expo you know, big FPA chapter, big NAPFA chapter, uh, local university, Golden Gate University, has a master's program in financial planning, which I actually eventually enrolled in. Um, and it was just so easy to get information about the financial planning career while in San Francisco. 
uh, and it really appealed to me. I mean, I liked managing my own finances and it seemed to have, it, it scratched this sort of analytical um, itch at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of what attracted me to the career. And of course, since then uh, I've moved, uh, well, my, my focus has become much broader, broader than just analytical and much more interested in sort of the behavioral side of things at this point. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the push and pull into this career. Interesting. And uh, and and what one thing I, I uh, appreciate about your website, um, you know, I, I think your I think your marketing communications are, are really clear. And now now knowing that you have a background in technical writing, I guess that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> so you're um, you're really clear on your site about you know who you want to attract and you know what your unique value is to them. Um, can you just you mentioned you know women in tech? Can you mm-hmm. elaborate a little bit? on that and um, and tell us you know what what is unique about that population what's what's unique about the services that they that they need from somebody like you sure uh, yeah I'm and I'm it's even more narrow than women in tech what I what I stay away from is women in tech who are on the verge of retiring because I I know from my presence in this financial planning profession that retirement planning is a just a robust study. You know, I I would want to have special designations and take special classes for, you know, to to be able to serve that population so well. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why I focus on sort of the early to mid-career when they're still very much enmeshed in accumulating assets and and figuring out their career. Uh, That's where I feel as if my existing skill set is most useful. now, how my firm can bring, bring particular value to the early to mid-career set, um, my, my team and I have actually sort of broken down our target market into sort of two smaller target markets just around those two career stages. And we find that generally women in their early careers in tech um, tend to, what the help they need is, oh my God, I just came from a normal middle-class family and now I'm earning well into the six figures in my salary and on top of that I have this this equity compensation thing right <laughs> I, have, I have no context for understanding the like the level of compensation or how it works and I don't have anyone to turn to my parents can't help me right right um, and so my experience having gone through that myself in the tech world um, and then on understanding those technical issues and help how to help these earlier career women wrap their heads around, okay, this is how you can actually use that high level of compensation and the slightly complicated kind of compensation to really set yourself up to have this abundance of choice and flexibility in the future. Um, and I think that issue of, of having choice, building enough financial strength so that you as a woman have the choice to say yes or no to things in your life. I think that's very powerful. These women really want to feel as if they are in control of their uh, their finances and their destiny, sort of mm-hmm. to, to put it very um, broadly. Um, and then the we move on to sort of the, the, the mid-career women in tech, and I find that what 
generally or most frequently comes up there is we sort of uh, glibly call it our existential crisis clients. <laughs> women who have been in the tech industry for maybe a decade, kind of like me in my early 30s, like, all right, I've been doing this. I've earned some good money. Interesting. Not really feeling this anymore. This is this is not feeling good to me as a career I want to stay in for a lot longer. Uh, so but, but they don't really have an idea of where they want to what they want right, to do, right. where they want to go from here. Um, and so for them, I think one of the values we bring is, again, if we can help you understand what your financial situation is, help you understand how you can make it even stronger, if that's necessary. Some of our clients come in already fundamentally financially very strong. Then I can tell you, look, you may, I give you permission sort of as your financial planner to go out and like radically just overturn your life and do something different. Do that thing you've long been wanting to do, but have been afraid to do it because maybe it's not prudent, maybe it's irresponsible. And I was, my parents taught me I was just supposed to work the nine to five until I retired at age 65. Um, but helping them sort of move out of that paralysis, like, you know, I'm not pleased with my career, but I'm, I'm afraid of doing anything different. Um, we can oftentimes come in there and say, look, you've done really well in saving, even if it hasn't been intentional or you've got this really strong financial foundation and you know you're you are smart and well educated and well connected and you've got great job skills go forth and do something different i you know you can do it it is a reasonable thing for you to do um and it almost is those mindsets that i can help the clients with um that is the biggest value at the, those two stages of the career it sounds like you didn't find it particularly daunting or maybe you did to <laughs> to really say this is who i'm going to work with because we we know this is something that a lot of advisors feel challenged by and can you tell tell us a bit about what what it took or or if you needed to convince yourself that you could narrowly focus your business sure, sure. uh i did not start off specifically with women in their early to mid career in tech i did start by saying okay i need well i told myself i need a niche but i know that Steve, Steve will uh, contest that term. Um, so um, I need I need a target market, um, and I actually used um, a worksheet, basically an exercise from Kristen Harrod, who's a marketing consultant down mm -hmm. in San Francisco, yeah. to sort of just march me through um, questions to help narrow narrow down the target market. And I actually started with working mothers in tech. Uh, which was even more closely aligned with who Meg is because I was a working mother and I used to be in tech. Um, but then I didn't actually get much traction on that, on that specific target market and eventually learned by having a working mother in tech tell me like, Meg, I would love to work with you. I don't have any time. <laughs> I've got this whole working mother <laughs> thing yeah. and I've also got this job in tech thing. Um, but still, even while I was still very explicit about the working mother in tech target market in my marketing, um, I was I was simply getting women in tech to come work with me. Right. Uh, so it was through attracting that sort of slightly different target market. And I, I then shifted my messaging really only about six months in maybe after starting my firm. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll say the reason I sort of drank the, the target market Kool-Aid from the beginning is because I run a virtual firm. Right. Um, okay. And if I had wanted to start a firm in Bellingham, Washington, that worked with affluent retirees, I probably could have done that, but I had no interest in that. 
Um, so can you so, talk to us yeah. about that virtual thing? And it's, it's a really, it's a, such an interesting concept, but I mean, I guess, first of all, what made you decide to, to go that route? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. What made me decide to go virtual is <clears throat> I am, I am of the belief that had I wanted to have a locally focused business, uh, I would have had to work with the affluent retiree set. Right. Okay. Um, right. So, so I, I had to be virtual mm-hmm. um, in order to work with the kind of people I wanted to work with, which was women in the tech industry. Uh, and so it was, it, it wasn't even really a choice. It was just, well, this is a requirement. So how does one run an entirely virtual practice? That's that, that, that's that's really interesting because you know I I I could see a lot of other advisors you know trying to figure out you know what their proposition was going to be and who they were going to focus on and you know really kind of look at you know who they had access to and <clears throat> I I think uh, just being able to say these are the people I want to work with and well there aren't that many of them around here mm-hmm. so I guess I have to do it this way that's a I I think that's really that's really creative that's really um, I think that's really interesting. Well, thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah I, <laughs> I have found that a lot of decisions in my business have been made very um, simple by knowing, by having a very clear idea of whom, I, whom I'm targeting, whom I'm trying to work with. Um, and that was probably the first one. Yeah. What were some of the, the challenges uh, in, in setting up that kind of business? Oh, probably the first challenge that lasted a good year was the question that everyone will ask about running a virtual practice is how do I get clients? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, sure. And that made the first year really rough. Um, I mean, I, I, I like to share with people that even though it was not in any way clinically diagnosed, I had something like a nervous breakdown about eight months in, um, where I just basically shut the doors of my business for a week and just cried because I was not growing very quickly at all. Um, I was, I knew from the beginning that uh, because I was going to be virtual, I needed to have content marketing, right? I needed to distinguish myself on, on the intertubes uh, so that (laughs) people could either find me or if they found me, I would stand out from, you know, the thousands of other financial advisors uh, on the internet. Uh, So I took to blogging. I like writing. I'm good at writing. So for the first probably two years, I blogged weekly. Uh, They sucked hard for the first (laughs) few months. You know, it was, it was the classic, like, should you contribute to a Roth IRA or a pre-tax IRA kind of, kind of blog post? I was thinking that this morning. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and, and now I know that that sort of blog post does not attract any eyeballs, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just had to write enough blog posts to finally hit some sort of stride and get comfortable with my voice. And as I got clients, I got better at identifying, oh, these are the questions that actual clients actually have. Um, And then I could start writing blog posts about that. Um, So I blogged regularly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I wanted to highlight a couple of things that you just said, because you just brought up a couple of really important points. One, one is that, uh, 
you know, I, I, when I, when I, when I work with people, I'm, I'm sure Julie feels this as well. And I think this is, you know, a pretty common among consultants is that, you know, there, we work with folks who have, you know, there, there is a resistance that, that comes up, um, from, from clients sometimes because, uh, they're uncomfortable doing something and they, and they don't think that they can do it well. Mm-hmm. And part of, you know, one of the really important things is that it, you know, it's, it's okay to, to, to do it not that well for a little bit so you can, you know, get some chops and learn how to do it yeah. better. And that can be really hard, you know, that, that can be, so I think it's really neat that, that you were, you know, that you were able to get the courage to, to, to do it, even if it wasn't, you know, the kind of quality where you were going to end up and to do that for a while. And, um, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? <laughs> it's totally, totally gone. Uh, <clears throat> right. Well, feel um, free to interrupt me again uh, okay. when that comes yeah. back. Um, yeah, I mean, the the nice thing looking back at my initial incredibly crappy blog posts is no one was reading those. No one knew I existed, <laughs> right? It was, just, it was just a typing exercise, really. Um, so... Um, oh, I know. The, yeah. the other thing, the other thing that you mentioned was <clears throat> um, listening to your clients to figure out what to read or oh, do, oh. What, to, what to write about. So, you know, and because there are a lot of advisors that when we say, well, you know, we'd, it would be great if you could generate content, if you could do thought leadership, if you could, you know, write about things to show people your expertise and the, uh, and, 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 and all of us, you know, probably go to, you know, well, what, what should I write about? You know, and, and you, and you try to dream it up yourself. And, and, and really, you know, if you're talking with clients on a regular basis, they'll tell you, I mean, that John John Anderson has said that on, on his blog, you know, that I never have a shortage of things to write about because every time I talk to advisors, which I do all day long, they give me ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, right now is a prime example of that in my firm because I do work with, women in tech. And, you know, as of early this year, we had a, a, a big handful of clients who either currently work for Airbnb or used to, and so have, you know, a goodly amount of stock in Airbnb. And now Airbnb has filed to go public at some point. Uh, so it was really easy for me to think, you know what, I should just write an entire series of blog posts about this Airbnb IPO and how you can prepare for it and what you should do if you have stock options or what you should do if you have restricted stock units. Um, and I can get really specific about this one company because like, I don't need that many clients. You know how many thousands of people work for Airbnb? Um, so that's really fun for me to just get really extremely narrow. If you have RSUs and Airbnb, here's what you should do for the IPO. That's awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. And can you talk a little bit? So you said you were going through this process and it really wasn't uh, great, but but oh, what yeah. was the turning point then? I mean, what? how did that eventually turn into attracting clients to the business? Yeah. So uh, despite my nervous breakdown, I was still <laughs> and once blogging. And that, what... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was still blogging regularly. Um, I found some women in tech online uh, organizations that I could participate in. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea of, you know, don't try to dig your own pond, go to an existing pond where, you know, the fish are already swimming. Uh, so that's what I did. I did not try to create any sort of group of women in tech that I could, you know, pitch my services to. 
um, I went to some groups that already existed and just tried to provide value. I did not try to pitch my services. If people had questions, I tried to answer them. Um, the group, one of these groups started offering webinars. And so I, you know, offered to provide webinars around financial issues. Um, and so you do enough of that stuff consistently enough for long enough. And about maybe 10 months in, I got the first prospect meeting request from someone whom I didn't know and had no social connection to me because they, I don't know if they'd read a blog or seen me in tech ladies or what. Um, and that, that was the first glimmer of hope that this was actually going to work. <laughs> uh, and I think from there, it really just, built and so maybe a year in is when i sort of turned and looked turned to my husband and said you know what this is going to work i still can't even pay our mortgage with what i'm not earning um but i can see that the trajectory is good so um if if you if you went back and and did it all over again um what would you do? What would you prioritize differently? And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, it took you that 10 months to start to, to get that first client that, that had no prior connection with you. But, but, yeah. um, if you, if, if, if you started with what you know today, how, how what do you think is a, a, a ramp up time that a, a new advisor should plan on for, you know, starting to get introduced to people they don't know? Yeah. I don't know if I could have done it any faster. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the internet is big um, and it takes time to, you know, have Google like you for SEO purposes. uh, And it takes many times in front of someone in a virtual environment, uh, many more times in a virtual environment than an in-person environment for someone to actually reach out to you for any sort of help. Um, so I don't know if I could have done it any faster. Honestly, the first year of business, if I could have done anything differently, it simply would have been on the sort of emotional management side of things. I would have exercised more. I would have lowered my expectations. I don't know. I would have met with my therapist more often or something. Um, <laughs> but I think I did all the right things. I had a really specific target market and I was blogging and getting involved in groups where that target market lived. Um, I think, you know, in retrospect, I'm very pleased that it honestly picked up as soon and as quickly as it did. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Can we talk a little bit about um, the the way you conduct virtual meetings? I know this yes. is certainly a question that, of course, everybody's asking now, but you mm-hmm. were already well down yeah. this path. And, and what have you found uh, works? How do you connect with clients? Do you do anything differently? Yeah. Uh, that you think is helpful for advisors to hear right now? Yeah, I mean, I think if if there was one if there were one message I were I would convey to advisors who are sort of new to the virtual firm thing, um, it would be reassurance on on the on the front of client relationships. Um, now, I can only speak from my experience working with people in the tech industry who are, who are already accustomed to doing things online. Um, But your client relationships do not have to suffer just because you're seeing people through a screen. There is still, you can still be there for them, have an emotional connection, be silent, give them space. Um, You can't put your hand on their arm if they start to cry, but 
you can be quiet and and allow them to have that emotion. Um, and I and I say that because I think people fear a virtual relationship because it just strips out the humanity. It's going to be purely transactional. Um, and, and I just don't find that. Uh, you might have to be more attentive to what you as the advisor are doing in, in meetings. Um, you know, close down everything else so that you're not sort of reflexively checking your Twitter account. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. <clears throat> I don't obsess about whether I'm looking in the webcam or in the screen. I actually just look at the client's eyes through the screen so to you know to the client it looks like i'm not looking directly at them but i think they there's sort of the sense they're they're accustomed to that so they know that i am um and so i i really emphasize sort of a almost a slow pace of my meetings leaving plenty of time for clients to say what they want to say have emotions move through emotions um and, and it really, I mean, I, don't, I can't really speak to it because I've never been a lead advisor in an in-person practice. Um, but it's it's entirely possible to have this rich, fulfilling, meaningful relationship when you've, you know, even when you've never met the person in, per- in person in person. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's really interesting because, you know, I hear with some frequency that that's, that's one of those reasons why some advisors don't gravitate more toward the virtual experience because they feel like like you just described that it, they, mm-hmm. they feel like it's it's not as complete or as full so it's interesting to hear that uh, you know how, how you approach that in a way that that helps you know make it that kind of a relationship so you know by we would we'd also we'd like to extend that then you know and, and ask you mm-hmm. because we're all about referrals here on the podcast is <laughs> um, what has been your experience in attracting referrals and um, you know you've been at a couple uh, brick and mortar RIAs before mm-hmm. and now you run a virtual RIA and so you know uh, well, what's been your experience and and how do you what do you think are some of the differences in um, uh, in referral behavior between the real or the uh, in-person and the virtual? Yeah, well, if I, I'm not particularly a metrics person, it's sort of my Achilles heel, but last time I checked, our referrals basically break down half and half between referrals from existing clients and uh, content marketing. You know, either they, they Googled mm-hmm. and found a blog post or watched a webinar I ran or something like that. Um. So I don't, I mean, I honestly don't know how being virtual directly affects referral possibilities, except for the fact that my clients in California can refer their coworker in New York easily mm-hmm. to work with me, right? They, my clients already have a virtual relationship, so there's no sense of geographic constraint when they have a coworker or a friend who also needs a financial planner, Um but I think even more than the virtual, it's just the the focus target market that I have, right? Um, I mean, Steve, I read your book several years ago about stop asking for referrals. And one of the things, you know, one of the big messages in there is you don't have to ask for referrals if you are making your value so specific and so clear mm-hmm. that when your clients encounter someone else who has has that problem, your name just naturally comes up as a sort of favor that the person's doing their friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually where I think most of my referral mojo comes from is just the specificity of 
uh, the people we work with and the, the service we provide. So do you have any, do you do anything to actively encourage referrals or is it more an issue of sort of deliver great service and, and your clients have delivered those? You know, I think in the past on occasion and sort of the, the quarterly client newsletter, I've thanked clients for referring to me as, and maybe that was sort of a tacit, you know, and keep on doing it. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I, at this point, and in fact, for most of the last two years, I'd say we've had a wait list. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't feel the need to really actively go out prospecting in, in any form. Um, so I do think it is, it is because of the value that we provide to a specific set of people that clients, um, do it on their own without me having like to be in their, their ear going, please, please go refer me. (laughs) Content marketing must drive some of that. Even, even if that's not an intentional focus of it, um, I would, I would hazard a guess that that means you've got a lot of shareable content and that that makes it easy to refer. Uh, Oh, absolutely. Um, when, you know, I, I actually just got a, a prospective client emailed me yesterday, she used to work at Airbnb. Now she works at this other unicorn with a great equity comp package. But her friend, who is my client, referred her to me, and you know, to prepare for the Airbnb IPO. And you know, here my last two blog posts are all about the Airbnb IPO. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if she did, I don't know if she went to my website, but if she checked out my blog, she can certainly see that the thing she needs most help with is the thing I have most recently written about in depth right. on my blog. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> and just just to highlight a couple things that you said. You know, well, first I should say, um, the, you know what 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 you're saying is you know I would hope would be a uh, a ray of hope for for many advisors because you know <laughs> some, some advisors that I've worked with you know are really challenged to, you know that by they they get referrals from the clients that they have who come into their office but when they then move out of town and become and and the the relationship transitions to more virtual that they find themselves challenged by, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to continue getting, because they find that those clients don't refer as much uh, or if Mm -hmm. at all, and it may just be because, you know, the, the, the relationship was established in a, in a different mode than they're currently doing it. Um, And that by the same token, that should probably strike terror into a lot of other advisors because (laughs) you're communicating very clearly that if you have a clear enough value for specific people, you know, you, you, you're not just competing with the people who are there in your town. You're competing with everybody all over the place. Um, yeah, and I, and I think some of this is very specific to the target market that we work with, right? Women right. in their early right. to mere career in tech, they are geographically more mobile than your average bear, right? So, you know, right. I have several clients who, since we've started working together, absolutely have moved states. And I expect within the next five years, they might move again. Uh, and that's a not surprising in that community. Uh, people who work in tech are probably more mov- mobile uh, than average, um, and and it simply doesn't affect our planning relationship at all. Um, right, right. So it, it just it it makes our relationships with our clients so it just makes it so much smoother when transitions happen in the client's life. Right, um, they can change pretty much anything, and our relationship doesn't have to change. And and so you mentioned too that you know you you aren't actively pursuing it necessarily, mm-hmm. but you know you for example in a client communication mentioned you know that that you really appreciate a couple of folks have 
have referred you recently. Mm -hmm. and, and that that's actually a great way to talk about referrals because you're just sort of reminding people that, you know, your good clients refer and you really appreciate it when they do. Are there any other specific kinds of processes you have set up around referrals, around what you do when you receive one or, you know, how you respond to them, anything like that? Yeah, I, I, I will say I am more willing to vary from the process uh, for referrals. If someone just comes to me sort of cold because they found a blog post, um, if there's no room on my calendar for a sort of free consultation until October, it is what it is. Uh, mm -hmm. You're just mm -hmm. going to have to wait till October. But if a client refers you, I will probably find room in the calendar if it exists earlier than that. So I'm sort of, I'll roll out the red carpet a little more for mm -hmm. for referrals. Uh, but other than that, no. Um, I would say it's, you know, I just, I, I simply try you know, across the firm to make make everyone, be they prospective clients or clients, just feel as comfortable and as welcome as possible. Um, it's just if you have some attachment or relationship to the firm already, um, you might get a little more wiggle room. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's that's um, some great ideas. I, uh, such an interesting business. I know uh, people are just going to love to hear about the things that you're doing. Um, if, if advisors just want to see a bit more about your business and mm -hmm. learn about you, where would they go, Meg? Uh, well, my website would be the best place. Uh, and that is flowfp.com as in flow financial planning, flow as in water flow. Got it. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your t time today. It's been great getting to know you. Yeah. Thanks, Meg. This has been terrific. Thank you. Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.